Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello Joe. And Alex Stewart. Morning Joe. Hello to both and all. Uh, today we're talking about a couple of different things. Part one, dependencies, football dependencies. Oh, they're exciting. Uh, also how they affect teams in different ways. So we're going to be talking about Virgil van Dijk. Other players including Kevin De Bruyne, Bruno Fernandes, Harry Kane. Uh, you know, any fullback you seem to have written here. I don't know what that means, but we'll come to find that uh, later in part one. Um, and there's a part two as well to today's conversation where Seb spoke to the wonderful Jonathan Harding. Really like Jonathan. Um, what did you talk to Jonathan Harding about, Seb? All sorts. We did a little bit on Hertha Berlin and the big old mess that's happening there. Very, very strange situation. We also chat a little bit about Thomas Tuchel uh, because he is inbound at Chelsea. Yeah. So we wanted to just get a little bit of background there. Yeah, danke. Yeah? Peter. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Very exciting. Nice. Very exciting, isn't it? I wonder if Chelsea will be developing a dependency on him. <laughs> Ooh, nice. <laughs> the police are nice. coming to get me. Anyway, uh, before we can start today's episode, let me just remind you that if you haven't already subscribed to The Athletic, then you have managed to listen to, I would say, <laughs> we're into triple figures now of adverts of me telling you to do so. Um, and I'll hope today's advert is the one that will convince you. I'm going to say some things now. Here they come. Here they come. It's good thing. It's good thing for £1 per week. Uh, if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you get good thing £1 per week in your mind whenever you want from your mobile device. Yeah, You get good thing, uh, good writers on the thing, and everybody's happy. Yeah. I feel like that's going to convince the people that haven't been convinced already. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. But for now, let's uh, go to part one and talk about footballing dependencies. I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Alex Stewart and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Okay, okay, footballing dependencies and how they affect teams. So these do hinge around specific players. Uh, however... We're going to have broad discussions around them. And the first one will be Virgil van Dijk. Alex, I'm going to come to you for this, because whilst we know a lot has been uh, spoken about Virgil van Dijk, lots, lots has been written about him too. The, the sort of butterfly effect is, um, is something that you're working on at the moment for a TIFO video. It's very interesting, isn't it? And uh, obviously he's, a, he's a, a huge omission. Yeah, and a butterfly effect's a good term for it, um, because there's this kind of knock-on thing. So football football teams are what we call a complex system. Um, that means that, that every part is interdependent and related, and it becomes very difficult really to assess the value of one part in exclusion of the others. Um, so what each player does is related to what all the other players do and how they work together as a whole. And so if you remove one part of that, even if the whole of the rest of the team stays the same then the knock-on effects are quite significant. Obviously, with Liverpool, there's an added problem, which is because they've also had injuries to uh, Gomez and Matip. It's not the same otherwise as well. So you've had players moving into different positions. And, and what we can see from, from that example is, straightforwardly, Liverpool are not able to do quite a lot of things as well as they did do with Van Dijk. And we can talk about those things a little bit in a minute, but also I think there's another point to make, which is... 
familiarity as well. That if you have a team like Liverpool that is based on a core of 13 or 14 players who are very used to playing with each other and, and are used to one another's roles and functions within that team, removing a couple of elements of that or jigging a couple of elements around, as well as the tactical side changing, it also just means those that team is less comfortable, it's less well-oiled, it's less well-drilled in everything that it has to do. So you can really see the effect of, of taking one crucial player out of a side. It, it can massively alter the, the complexion of how that side plays. I think this podcast is a uh, is a complex system, right? <laughs> yeah. One other thing I think it's a little bit overlooked, and it's a um, it's a product of where Liverpool are at the moment. But you do wonder whether um, in a situation where Liverpool are struggling to create chances and not scoring as many goals as they need to, um, particularly in tight games where they're facing stubborn opponents. One of one of like the big misses with Van Dijk is just his, his threat from set pieces. Um, at the moment, they've scored six times from set pieces this season, so corners and free kicks, um, and that kind of places him in the in the middle of the Premier League pack. Add Van Dijk to that, particularly against a team like I don't know Burnley, for instance, or that game against Manchester United in the FA Cup, and you just have a kind of not quite get out of jail free card, but a player who can help you when you're not playing well, get you a goal when things aren't working as well as they might do when players are jaded, attacking systems aren't quite as well-oiled as they, they usually are. Um, and I think that's vaguely true with a lot of centre-halves. Like it's, it's rare to find a centre-half who isn't proficient in the penalty box, uh, in the attacking penalty box. And it's just, um, if you if you look back, actually, like all the way back to Blackburn Rovers when they won the Premier League title, there are a couple of games towards the end of that season where... They didn't play particularly well. And then they get a goal from someone like Colin Hendry, for instance. And it's one yeah. of those sort of underlooked, um, overlooked aspects of, of a centre-half's worth. Obviously, like, you need the security and you need the kind of defensive exits and you need the stability for full-backs and defensive midfielders and goalkeepers. But actually, they're a big attacking weapon most of the time. I completely forgot that Colin Hendry existed. With he his was, big broken he was, nose and his bleached hair. He was quite terrifying, just... wasn't he? It, I think it was the mixture. Of, yeah, it was like it was the hair. It was the hair, like on top of it. It looked like it, it was the wrong hair. But he's no. also is. Was he not the player who ended up on his ass uh, during the the famous Paul Gascoigne? It was indeed uh, he was Euro ninety six yeah. goal. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. must have stung. Yeah, Virgil Van Dijk scored five goals last season when Liverpool won the title. Which is a, a sizable return. I, I I don't know whether those goals were in clutch games or or to you know to secure a win or something. But but that's you know a good return from a centre back, and he got four goals and two assists the season before. So it's a it's an important contribution. Well, also even if even if the centre half isn't scoring himself, like most centre halves are a key part of any set piece strategy. Like if it's um, a near post run, if it's misdirection, like if he's got a little bit of a, you know, like a screening role around the penalty spot to prevent markers from getting to where they should be. Like it, it can cause all sorts of havoc and it, it, and it, and it, um, it demands a major rethink in that department. And set pieces are kind of a, uh, like a, a, a small version of the overall issue, aren't they? Because a player is assigned those roles they're training in, you know, five, 10, 15 different set piece approaches 
and learning that role and, and having somebody else take it and having the other players know that that player's going to do it and they're trying to remember what it all is. It's, it's a sort of a, a good mini example of, of how this issue affects teams more broadly. So I watched the, the, the second of the Liverpool-Man United games the other day. Still don't think it was as good as the first one, Alex. But um, one thing that kept... Uh, I, I kept won that own rake over the old... Oh, 60-odd no. percent agreed with Yeah, me. well, yeah, that's 60% of people have are wrong. That's the problem. You know, that <laughs> often happens, doesn't it? I mean, listen, Donald Trump was voted in. Uh, what I'm saying is uh, I watched the game... I saw uh, uh, the pundits describing the effect, I think, of, of no Van Dyke, um, and also um, discussing you know, Henderson and Fabinho being dropped back into uh, the, the centre-back roles. What that, what that exposed in the midfield. Um, there's been some discussion about Thiago also, which I'd be interested to get both of your takes on, even though it's slightly tangentially related. Um, but also, one of the reasons that I think Manchester United seem to have so much, um, so much height and so much width in the game most recently was because there was no Henderson in, in midfield. Of course, he wasn't playing at centre back either, whether he was for the for the first game. Uh, but the point I'm making is that you know you you lose a big player in centre back. You have players dragged out of their natural positions. Henderson is the player in the central uh, midfield for, area for Liverpool that would normally tuck in behind those full backs, prevent those uh, opposition wide players making the deep and long runs. And that just really wasn't happening against Manchester United in, in the second game. So suddenly, you know, Liverpool start to concede chances and, and uh, opposition opportunities that really, I suppose, are much more rare in normal games. It's an area of the pitch that is just more often than not locked off. And that seems something that's sort of, tactically speaking, three or four steps removed from Van Dijk not being there. But he's still uh, indirectly uh, affected by his absence, Alex. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think particularly when you look at a team like Liverpool, where, you know, obviously it, there's a complex pressing system, um, but also the fullbacks are pushing up as high as they are. And we talked a lot before, and it's it's interesting that, you know, a lot of the conversation around Liverpool's tactics a couple of years ago was the fact that this was a midfield whose job was to cover, was to move into other parts of the pitch to allow the fullbacks to push up, that it wasn't a creative midfield particularly. And, and that's... That's what you now see missing, um, and and they are trying to compensate by injecting more creativity into that midfield. So players like Thiago, obviously, but also Jordan Shakiri coming in. Um, but there's not necessarily. I don't know whether it's that that there's less familiarity; those players are less defensively minded. Um, but Liverpool are. They were sort of trying to change that approach slightly before Van Dijk got injured, but still with the security of Henderson being able to to be that that cover, particularly for Alexander-Arnold on the right-hand side. Not just a cover either, you know, the, the way that Henderson pushes up into the right half space to act as a, a, a pass inside and slightly back option to allow Liverpool to recycle. Yeah. Um, that's That's been lost. But I also think from a defensive perspective, one of the things that Van Dijk allows Liverpool to do as a really good and quick one-on-one defender is to play a higher line. And this is something that I remember that we saw with Manchester City when Fabinho was being forced to play at centre-back. Instead of having a proactive forwards defensive line, if that makes sense, um, having a player who's not a comfortable centre-back means that the defence quite often are retreating instead, that they're seeking to regain their position closer to the goal, prevent longer shooting opportunities and and that allows space in front of the midfield and 
And of course with Liverpool there's then a knock-on effect, which is that they can't press as high, they can't control space in quite the same way, they can't then get those counter-pressing opportunities that they, they used to thrive off. So, you know, we, we can see these kind of reverberations out from the absence of one player, exactly like you said, in terms of how the fullbacks push up and the midfield cover, but also in lots and lots of other different ways. It's, it's a, like I say, it's a complex thing. Hey, Seb, um, Liverpool's player, Thiago, is rubbish, isn't he? He's really rubbish. And uh, Liverpool haven't ever won a game since he's arrived. He's awful. <laughs> and he's actually, I think, um, he's, he was behind the Brexit vote. <laughs> Yeah, the internet really like really went hard on him, didn't they? It's funny because I think one of the other things I'd say about Liverpool's midfield is because um because there's been so much flux and, and changeover. Um, I wonder when they come up against a, a team who transition a lot, who have midfielders who move from midfield into attack, which is which is most teams in the top half now in the Premier League at least. Like, I wonder how difficult that is because obviously within that you're you're passing over marking responsibilities and defensive obligations. And all of a sudden, when you start removing pieces like Henderson, I mean, in my opinion, probably one of the loudest players in the Premier League, like especially now, like you, you can really hear how verbal he is on the pitch and how much organising he does. Almost if as you, loud as Andy Robertson. Right? Almost. <laughs> that was really weird. I don't think I've ever seen that before. That like was Screaming weird. at a player to try and put him off. <laughs> um, although, do, do you remember when um, it was a couple of years ago, Arsenal were playing... Uh, Arsenal were playing against that team who had the goalkeeper who ate a pie at half time. Do you remember that? Oh, Sutton yeah. United. Sutton, Sutton United. Yeah. There was a there was a moment in that game where Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, still at Arsenal at the time, was running down the touchline and uh the fullback he was facing tried to put him off by pretending to headbutt him. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not sure specifically. You... Okay, so Google that and see if you can find it. It's very, very funny. But I wonder for, for last time like I Thiago, used Google, I found out some horrible stuff about Colin Hendry, so I don't want to do it again. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, let's not go down that path again. I guess. But I wonder for Thiago. Obviously, he's used to a system, and he prospers in a system where there's a lot of possession, and he plays. Sorry for the cliche, but more of a quarterbacking role. He has the the, the armchair from where he you know, picks his passes and you know cuts lines, uh, changes the uh, point of the attack. And now he's not in a situation where that's little bit up in the air it's not quite as controlled as it used to be but also um you have all this sort of uh vague confusion in that department because of the flux i think it's really really difficult i i I can't get on board with any any opinion which begins with no tiago is not a really 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 good footballer because i don't think that's uh that's a no, sustainable sure. position, really. I think it's funny because I think, you know, naturally you would assume that if you replaced one of the three, uh, you know, fairly workmanlike uh, Liverpool midfield of last season with um, either a player like Thiago or a more a player who offers more in terms of attacking ver- uh, verticality, that they'd be a more attacking team. And it doesn't really work like that, does it? Because it's a complex system, according to Alex or someone else. Anyway, uh, that'll do uh, for the Reds. Let's get on to the Blues. And that is, of course, Kevin De Bruyne, who is out for around six weeks. Poor fella. He's a good footballer. He'll want to be playing football. And, of course, Pep Guardiola will be disappointed to lose him because he's the best player that they have. Uh, Alex? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's... he's I care about this one. Yeah, no, I can tell. Um, he is 
I don't know if he's the best player they have. Obviously, I I can't answer that. But what, what? I can't. Well, sorry, you don't know that Kevin De Bruyne is Manchester City's best player. Now I care. Well, I think it's very difficult to describe a player as the you... best or not. No, given no, what sorry, hold on. Said about... No, uh, how, are you doing a joke? No, I was going to say he's their most important player. Hmm. I mean, okay, he probably is their best player, but I'm. Thank you. You know, he's he's got ten assists so far this season in the league. Nobody else has got more than three. Um, he's also got three goals. And what's happened with the way that City are setting up um, is that he has very often been the primary creative focus, almost to the extent that nobody else is expected to do anything. And so City have kind of had to adapt because of these midfield problems that they've had with uh, with Gundogan and Rodri. And De Bruyne has been playing off the striker, but with the athleticism to sort of do some covering as well. If you take him out, all of a sudden, it it's probably worse for City in that regard than losing Van Dijk is for Liverpool, because you might have less system adaptation, but everything's been going through De Bruyne this season, pretty much everything. And that's that's just a... It's a much more straightforward loss in in terms of playing quality to understand. It's not as complex as the Van Dyke system thing, but it's probably more impactful. I think that was the case, this case for most of the season, wasn't it? And then over the last sort of, I don't know, two, three, four games, Seb, we started to see some material contributions from elsewhere. I'm thinking of the number of goals that Gundogan scored, for example, um, but I mean, there's just no replacing Kevin De Bruyne is there, and I imagine, uh, uh, you know, as Alex says, perhaps there isn't a a system change required. It's more of a personnel change here, or a change of uh, change of lineup, for example. But psychologically, this probably affects uh, the team a lot. Yeah, I think also probably affects the way that um, the little tendencies that players have within games. Like Kevin Kevin De Bruyne isn't a one trick pony by any means. He's as complete a footballer as there is in the league, obviously, but. I wonder whether he's the best one at that club. I, isn't he? Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you there. He's uh, think so. I, I think yeah, <laughs> good player. Um, but I, I was I was looking back over sort of some of his uh, better moments from this season earlier this morning, and obviously one of the balls that he really likes is that right-footed arcing ball from a kind of shallow right position. Curves at the um, end, the half-space cross. Yeah, well, and then I was thinking. If you're a forward or a, a wide forward in that in that situation, then you tailor a run around his ability to play that ball because there are very few players in the league or the world who, who can play as accurately as and reliably as he can. And then if you're missing De Bruyne and you're trying to replace him with someone like a, a Phil Foden or a, a Bernardo Silva, for instance, if you're a forward in that system, none of those players can replicate that sort of that shape of pass. And so as a result, you then start to have you, you need to to make different runs to exploit defensive weaknesses instead of, for instance, yeah. instead of running off um, a defender's outside shoulder on the left half of the pitch, you're having to go inside because a left-footed player can't play that pass. So it's really interesting. You can go quite micro with the detail there, but forgetting the fact that he's just a very, very good player who can unpick any defence that he plays against, like you're essentially creating a situation where players have to relearn their habits for about six weeks. It's, it's really that's weird. quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Teammates will train themselves to do stuff uh, on the basis of a player who can do things that no one else can. Well, yeah, because... <laughs> those, you... those moves are irrelevant or useless if he's not there. 
Yeah, I, I'm, we're doing a little bit of work on Dennis Bergkamp in the moment, and there are a lot of interviews which I've, I've either listened to or read where players talk about knowing what kind of passes he's he can play before he even receives the ball, and so making the runs um, into the right positions to capitalise on that. Now, okay, Bergkamp and, and De Bruyne are obviously different, different eras as well, different skill sets, um, but it's the same principle. You take that away, all of a sudden, you know, instead of uh, seeing the ball go to De Bruyne and making a run, you know, you know, five seconds before a defense has an opportunity to react to it, or a split second before, I should say, all of a sudden you, th- you have to pause and think. It's like, ah, oh, no, that's Phil Foden on the ball. He's probably going to carry it a little bit, and then, you know, he might dump it off over ten yards rather than trying to play something over twenty-five yards. Bernardo is a little bit like that too. I mean, maybe I need to move here because he's left-footed, and so even he's even if he's playing on the outside of the boot, it's not going to bend into my path in quite the same way. And you know, in, in a Premier League game where the where the um, the margins are so fine, that makes a difference. Say what, um, Dennis Bergkamp and uh, and um, Kevin De Bruyne it might be different players, but they've got the same hair, haven't they? And this reminds me of this theory I've been working on for a while about hair and football teams because I think you'll agree that if you look at Premier League football teams the best player in each team has a particular haircut and at least sort of three of the other players who are sort of that that player's friends or maybe the younger players they have the same haircut and each Premier League team (laughs) has its own kind of haircut so for example I used to think this about Southampton. Everybody who played for Southampton about four years ago all looked like they were going to, you know, the 1947 RAF ball reunion or something. Uh, and they had that kind of swept hair with the side passing. It was all very tidy. It was kind of light, uh, light brown or blonde. <coughs> and they all there was all there was some you know consistency to it. And uh, of course, uh, James Ward-Prowse had this haircut. Um, and I think, you know, some of the players were basically Callum Chambers had following him for a while. Callum, Callum Chambers had it too. Before he moved to Arsenal, uh, yeah. Arsenal had something very similar. Arsenal had the short, the shortened trims. You could say, for example, um, a really good a really good example is Leeds. There are about three players there who have the same kind of unusual haircut. In Soconomics, there's a, um, there's a thing about scouting and some of the issues that... Zinchenko and De Bruyne. Sorry, that was my other example. Go ahead. With, with scouting and the... Um, blonde players tend to stand out more in scouting reports because if you're watching a whole team then your eye is more naturally drawn to lighter colors and so and so blonde players get scouted better because they get paid more attention to that's interesting yeah but i think there's something about these uh hair chemistry you know they just they just conform to one another and and you know i think zinchenko's choice of hair is a subconscious uh support and adulation of um of kevin de bruyne david luis and uh matteo guenduzzi when they played together for arsenal yeah although i think they both had that hair separately prior to joining each other so we I th- can't say i think that they that did been, yeah but that I, hasn't but been... i did feel there was a connection there and also there was a connection i would sometimes get the two of them confused from a distance i suppose though with that with that you have to really commit to that hairstyle like you can't just <laughs> go home one day and think i fancy a change and the next day how long has massive... david louise had that hair for for long a long time you can find some very early pictures he did of cut him it though it, didn't he Benfica. He cut no, it he... and then it grew back. I mean, I, I disagree with you, Seb. I think the you know what literally happens is that you don't have to commit to it; that it just grows. 
you just choose not to do anything, or you act in you it's know, the in opposite of, of commitment. Choice. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's I, I, non-commitment, I disagree. I, I and that's what happens to... when you don't commit to anything. No, I, I think you have to maintain that haircut. I mean, if it's if it's to look, if it's to if if, you, if it's to grow to a Premier League standard, then you <laughs> do need to. Standard. You probably need to oil it. You probably need to no, no, re-perm is, every no, no, no. Have you ever had shoulder length hair? When I was very young, yeah. Okay, well, me too. And I never oiled mine, but I'll yeah, tell but you, you, it was you Premier have very League straight standards. hair. Is I don't have very straight. I have very thick hair. I looked like a. I looked like a. Uh, uh, you know, I looked like a tree. What? <laughs> wow! Wow! This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Bruno Fernandes. We saw an example over the the weekend, of course, the Liverpool game, where uh, Donny van der Beek was let out for once. Um, Nice to see some quotes from Donny van der Beek over the weekend, uh, uh, stories suggesting that he's happy to wait and be patient and you know hey fair, if that's true fair dues um because he didn't really have much of a, a of a, a sniff in this game I, I sort of felt like uh rudely tweeting at 15 minutes is is donny van der Beek playing because i hadn't really noticed him not that it was his fault he was it was locked down in the center of a, a tense game um but he came off at about i don't know 65 minutes and was replaced of course by bruno fernandez who's barely missed a minute since he arrived last january and I think has scored more Premier League goals in that time than anybody else. Um, he's, you know, undroppable, except for the fact that he was kind of just dropped for a bit. Uh, he joked after the game about not needing a rest. He wasn't tired. And uh, you sort of think United are a, an entirely different outfit without him, despite the fact that, of course, uh, in in recent you know games, Paul Pogba has uh, stepped up to the plate too. Stepped up so far that Jermaine Genus made him man of the match for that game against Liverpool, which was slightly odd. Um, but uh, you know maybe Manchester United managed fairly well without him, and of course he came on to score this lovely free kick, the winning goal. Uh, Seb, begin. Bruno Fernandez. Uh, he's 28, isn't he? They've only what have they got left of him. He's 26. He's 26. Yeah, hot dog. Well, ignore everything I said. Let's move on. He looks older. Well, I, I he does look a little bit older. He's got a little bit of a um, a weather weathered look at the moment. But then that might be because he's been running to the ground. Um, no, he was weathered when he arrived. That we, we he, they got him like that. Okay. Well, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I they've not broken him. No, I'm just. I don't want any. There's no issues with the deposit. He's. Um, I suppose. What we've learned through lockdown um, and lockdown football and the kind of the, the nature of the fixture list is that um, players' soft tissues in their muscles are screaming uh, with every game. And you do wonder whether there is something like that in, in Bruno Fernandes' future. But it's it's really interesting because if you... Um, we talked earlier about kind of defensive mechanics and midfield mechanics. And if you take him out of the Man United side, you lose someone that... Um, doesn't quite roam because you you tend to see him in um, a variety of positions, but all in the same area of the pitch. So he kind of he likes the he likes the left hand touchline. He also likes to go beyond the last um, defenders, and he has a kind of if you imagine like sort of a 
a smooth, um, slight, almost right-angled curve from the left-hand halfway line up to about the penalty spot. I suppose that's kind of his territory on the left of that. Um, and if you if you take him out of that midfield, then you're left with players who can progress the, the ball and you know who can lead transitions and who can carry the ball. Someone like Pogba, um, Van der Beek can do some of the things that Bruno Fernandes can do. But you you lose a lot of the variety. Forget the skill set. Um, you lose a lot of the uh, I suppose the surprise element in the um, in the Man United's midfield because I I think part of the success is a yes he's a, he's, a, he's an excellent player with lots of you know, brilliant technique um, but he's also someone that does things that will surprise you. So for instance, if you remember, um, I think it was against Leicester. Do you remember the assist he gave for? Um, uh, I forget who scored the goal. It might have been Marcus Rashford when he was kind of falling and he just prodded it into um, he prodded it into the path of, of the centre forward oh, and yeah. scored yeah, yeah, that yeah. goal. Like that kind of like that's the kind of thing that you don't associate with him. But it's the little moments which um, which you can't really legislate for if you're a defender that he's able to contribute. And I think that's one of he the things thinks, he, it's like he has more time to think than you do. It really does. Yes. Well, you know, I think he's pretty good. Uh, disagree with you Seb I don't know what you're talking about uh, Alex when you take this player out of this side what do they become because at the moment we're discussing not seriously I don't think Manchester United is a team that could potentially win the title the title this season and of course you know injury to Kevin De Bruyne probably pretty good uh, but I don't think so um, you take Fernandez out of it and suddenly they are well they're they're 11 goals and 7 assists late <laughs> I mean he's he's done <laughs> He's done a lot more than anybody else. Right. Um, yes. That, thanks in, for saving that. In, and and you know Rashford. Rashford is the next most productive player all round, and Rashford specifically benefits from having Fernandez on the pitch. So you don't just lose what Fernandez brings; you lose what he brings to United's next most productive player. I think as well with with Fernandez, there's. I mean, I absolutely agree with everything that Seb has said. Um, that ability to conjure the unexpected, the set piece delivery, which is obviously very important. Um, but also, I I think it's hard. And this this point was made during the the commentary of the um, the cup game against Liverpool, where I thought Jermaine Janus was was a very good co commentator. Um, there probably hasn't been uh, a transfer into Manchester United that has had the same level of impact since potentially Eric Cantona. And so you, you're not just taking away a really good player who's done an awful lot. You're also taking away the player who has come in and pretty much single-handedly transformed United's style of play, but also their degree of success. Can I make another um, suggestion quickly for a player who might have been more influential, impactful? Go on, Van der Sar. I was going to. Uh, I was going to suggest Dwight York. Just sure, that's also a good they, suggestion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that I necessarily agree or otherwise, but I, I think it's you know that this is somebody who's come in, who's won the Player of the Month X number of times, who's contributed a huge amount, who is being talked about as a transformational signing already. Best signing of 2020 by 100 million miles. Oh, without question. Um, and and so, you know, you, you with Manchester United, you, you kind of worry that there's a... 
I don't want to say that there's an issue with their mentality, but I think that the the deficit in in certain of the uh, tactical aspects of their play, particularly in attack, means that they come to rely very heavily on Fernandez's ability to do unexpected things, and that's partly why he's thrived in in that system. I mean, it's a system that's pretty much built around him in that four two three one. So if you get rid of that, you've also probably got other players looking at it going, well, how's, you know, if you're Rashford, you're thinking, well, how's the ball going to come to me in quite the same sort of way? It's it's similar to what Seb was talking about with, with De Bruyne. Um, the, the knock-on effects psychologically, I think, um, can be quite significant as well. Um, so, yeah, United can ill afford to lose him. No, okay. Although, you know, to be fair to the team, they seem to play okay against a, uh, you know, a fairly stolid Liverpool side uh, for 65 minutes without him, but I doubt well, we'll I, see that I thought, too often I this thought season. Liverpool probably looked better up until Fernandes came on than they've looked in their last sort of four or five Premier League games. In, in periods, right? I mean, so for the first 15, 20 minutes of the game, they were totally on top. But I think for the, the end of the first half and for, you know, Actually, fairly fairly long periods of the beginning of the second half, other than Liverpool's um, Liverpool's second goal, Man United were. You know, I, I felt pretty regularly throughout the game that Manchester United were more likely to win the game. Oh, yeah, well, we said this before the match. Um, yeah, but I felt like maybe those two sides went into that game with a slightly different mentality. It was very loose as a game of football, and it was as if yeah. they kind of, you know, it was a day off. Let's have a crack at each other kind of game. Yeah, particularly in comparison to the the, the, the league game. Yeah, the, the I think it's worth mentioning for... how good Luke Shaw has been recently as well. After we sure. made that Man United is he, fullbacks video, is is Man United <laughs> dependent on him? Is he a dependency um, now? Um, well, I mean, Telus is waiting in the wings, right? But I think I think Shaw is just in in a vein of form where people are being reminded of why. A lot was paid for him as as a very young player from Southampton, and I like what a bastard he is on the pitch. I mean that I don't mean that in a in a derogatory way, but I feel like he's he's very consistent when when a ball goes out of the touchline and he's been chasing with an opponent to get there. He'll just give them a little push yeah. to make sure that they go into the you know not well, into the, the Manchester the, the United are but... Manchester United are not a team that has that edge particularly otherwise. I think McTominay is a little bit like that. Fernandez is a bit like that. Fernandez in a kind of more spiteful, slightly petulant way, possibly. But I think I think good teams have always got somebody who <laughs> can be a bit of a shithead. You know, I find it really funny. Like it's just, it's it's quite fun to watch. Even the psychology of it, because you think like he's doing he's doing this for the benefit of his team. He he's happy to uh, he. Luke Shaw. The reason the reason I, I I like him as a player is because the way that he acts makes me think that he doesn't give a shit what anyone on the opposition team thinks of him, and that's quite uh, endearing in a football player because sometimes you you watch games and you think, it, you know when you know when pundits complain that that the opposition players are talking too much. I should say pundits. You know when Roy Keane complains that players are talking <laughs> to the other team too much and they're being too friendly friendly. I don't think it's specifically that they're talking to each other or that they are friendly that, that is the problem. I think it's more that they aren't uh, displaying you know, what, what Roy Keane did, what Luke Shaw does, which is a, a total and utter contempt for the opposition just mm. for that 90-minute period 
that they don't give a shit about you, they don't care what you think, they they only want to hurt you, they'll do anything to defend their teammates, even if their teammates are clearly blatantly wrong, they'll still defend them, uh, and they'll they'll look like a tit doing it. Like that, I think that's what Roy Keane wants to see. Yeah, Kieran Tinney does it a lot for Arsenal as well, and I, Andy I, I really too. Like, I really think it's like it it's they're left back shit houses. But I think that sort of thing is really important. I think did, if you're... Does the shithouse car- uh, cover it? I mean, we're kind of describing this sociopaths, really. Aren't we? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's not that bad. I, th- I think, it, I think it's, I, it's not wholly performative, obviously. Um, but I think, I think teams need to have at least one player who's got that edge to them of unpleasantness on the pitch. Just, you think about playing against them. Like What difference really that makes? Important. If you know that yeah. every time you reach a, a, a ball that reaches the byline before Luke Shaw, he's going to push you in the back. That kind of sucks, man. Like Over 90 minutes, that, that's, <laughs> that's going to get into your psyche. Not only is it going to fuck you off if you're the wrong sort of character, if you're going to be reactionary to that, it's also going to change the way that you, you tense. It's going to change your body language. It's probably going to change the way that you move. Like, it's going to change the way that you not react to him, but the, the way that you are proactive about playing against well, your, him. Your anticipation every time a pass is played in or, or yeah. that you're chasing yeah. a ball, what you want to do as a defender is make sure that that the opponent is concentrating more on you and what you're going to do than they can concentrate on controlling the ball and then playing a pass with it and this is part of how you do it you 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 make yourself incredibly awkward um and that i think that's a real quality in defenders yeah shares is anyway um that's probably the end of the, the part 1 i think we've run out of time here but we do have a very exciting part two coming up where Seb spoke to Jonathan Harding, the wonderful Jonathan Harding. So uh, so do stick around and listen to that and we'll be back at the end just to say goodbye. Okay, welcome back, friend of the podcast, Jonathan Harding. How are you? Very well, thanks, Seb. Thank you for having me on. Okay, lockdown hasn't been treating Hertha Berlin well. Um, for those who... Safe to say. Yeah, I, and I feel like we need to add a little bit of context here because uh, without going to a very, making this a very, very long segment, um, we need to kind of describe the dysfunction that's been going on. So if we start at the point where they had a fantastic new takeover and became extremely wealthy very quickly and started spending money like it was going out of fashion, what happened next? And let's, let's begin with our old friend Jürgen Klinsmann. I think when you when you have an idea, you know, Hertha Berlin wanted to be this big club. You know, they, they called themselves this this idea of this big city club that they've been branding about. Uh, and this has really been around Hertha's sort of quirky mottos have been around for a while. You know, like we try, we fail, we win. Um, I think the club has tried everything they can to improve their image and then getting Klinsman felt like the last piece of the puzzle in terms of high profile going to make a difference to the direction of the club. We've got players, we've spent money, as you say. And I think the lesson here is that throwing money and uh, big names at a situation without having a plan is not going to get you where you want to go. And, you know, Hertha have, have insisted that they've always had a plan or, you know, they, they, this is part of the process. But it's quite obvious 
that it, it isn't and that the, the plan can't really exist if you've gone from one coach and four coaches later you've come back around to the same coach you know you get Klinsmann in after failing with Ante Kovic who's a youth coach who came in after long-standing Paul Dardai was there you know you bring in Alexander Nuri in the interim then Labadia comes in and then you go back to Dardai you know it's not a sign of a, of a club that knows really what it's doing um, and I think if you spend a lot of money and you appoint someone like Klinsmann and you don't think about the impact, appropriate nature of the appointment, does it fit? Does it make sense? Then you're only going to fall on your face. And that's basically what happened with, with the Klinsmann appointment. Klinsmann seemed to expect that he would be given a kind of a full autonomy to redesign like almost all of the footballing departments within the club. And then from the outside, and, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, he repeated a, a trick we've seen before, which was, you know, to to announce his resignation essentially via Facebook, which is unorthodox, I suppose. Um, and then, for yes. want of a better word, um, to kind of flounce off a little bit. I, I have a, a you know a lot of lasting affection for Jurgen Klinsmann because of my own club loyalties. But how did how did they not see that coming, given his past record? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that again points to not making the right decision in terms of appointing a coach. You know, you have to have done your homework and the appointment of Klinsman suggested that they didn't do that homework in the right areas. Um, I think the defence, as it always is in this situation, will be, well, we appointed a big name and it didn't work out, but we made the right decision for the club because more people are going to tune into a Jürgen Klinsmann Hertha Berlin team than otherwise. Um, you could argue that they did get uh, a large amount of publicity during... Jürgen Klinsmann's 76 days in charge. Um, but <laughs> whether that was the right amount of publicity is, of course, questionable. Um, I think him going on Facebook and uh, coming out and, you know, saying that even, you know, Michel Prietz, the general manager, should also be fired immediately. Those are the kind of things that just show you how frustrated and disrespected he felt, but also how poorly the communication was internally um, because if someone is hired under the premise that they could potentially have more responsibility than then ensues, that's going to cause frustrations, especially for someone like Jürgen Klinsmann, who probably you know, inevitably has a certain degree of ego about his ability to do the job. Um, but it was the start of a, a, I mean, it wasn't even the start, it was just the next walking nightmare for Hetta Berlin, really, who uh, have just never really... Got it right. And of course, the irony and the worst part of all of this, and you know, you've done some, some great work at TIFO about the other team in Berlin who have proved that <laughs> by not throwing money at the situation, but by actually getting smart people in the business and, and getting the right people in the building, you can be way more effective. You mentioned Bruno Labadia earlier, and he's kind of, I'm trying to draw a parallel, he's a little bit of a journeyman in Bundesliga circles. He's kind of, um, I don't want to um, tag anybody with the Sam Allardyce brush but like he, he fills a similar kind of void he's, be, he's been around and he's been around kind of everywhere would that be fair yeah I think he's I mean yeah I mean maybe the Allardyce brush is a, is a, is a tricky it's harsh, one it's a harsh on. brush <laughs> it is it's, it's yeah it's definitely a little bit more than just a varnish that we're applying there I think um, I think it's a, a tough one for Labadier because yeah you're right you know I think Hertha was his 10th Bundesliga club he's certainly been around been around but he has done some some good work at certain places. You know, he did do well at Wolfsburg. Um, he has had it hard at, at certain clubs. I feel a little bit sorry for him on the one hand because I think he walked into a situation that he wasn't fully aware of. But on the other, if you watched Hertha play football in recent weeks, 
some of the responsibility has to fall at his feet because I actually think this squad is very talented and they shouldn't be near a relegation battle. And some of that has to be on him. He um, So he's gone, and Mikhail Prietz, you mentioned the sporting director, he's gone with him. So as we're talking now, what is, what is, the, what is the shape of Hertha? What are the sporting well, dimensions, a, I suppose, is what I'm asking. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a positive one. I mean, you know, you've got Arna Friedrich, who's supposed to take over from Michel Prietz until the end of the season. And, and Friedrich had come in on this sort of performance um, coach sort of angle to begin with. I think the break from, from Preetz is a really interesting one. Um, this is a guy who's basically been connected to Hertha for 25 years. I think that's monumental. I think it's also long overdue. I think he probably survived a couple of managerial sackings that he should have probably paid the price for. So I think this is definitely a fresh start for Hertha, except in that they appointed Pal Dada, who's the guy who was at the start of this process, who had been in charge for four years until 2019, the summer of 2019, when this sort of revamped Hertha began. And I think that's my my main concern. You know, in, in the four coaches that you've gone through since Dada, you, you haven't really progressed. So why did you get rid of him in the first place? You know, let's not forget that Dada took Hertha to the Europa League. Okay, they didn't perform that well, but he had them performing extremely well in the Bundesliga. And I think... Did you know, he get them promoted originally? Like back uh, in... No, that was, that was Jos Luhukai who, who okay. got them lifted uh, in, in 2015. Um, I think you, you've got the situation where, where Dada has done such a great job um, uh, in the past. And I just wonder how can you... I don't know. How can you justify bringing the guy back? I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, he's he's coming to try and steady the ship, I guess is the right way to phrase it. But yeah, I don't know about Hertha. It's a tricky one. I think this squad, as I said earlier, is capable of, of performing much better than it, it is at the moment. Um, I don't know whether Pau Dada is the right guy to do that, but I can understand the reasons for, for appointing him in the first place. It's a, it's a tricky time to be a Hertha Berlin fan. Yeah, because it's a talented squad. I mean, beyond, like, I know Arsenal fans will be aware that Matteo Guendouzi is there, but uh, Piontek, uh, Nicholas Stark is there, um, Luca Bacchio is there, uh, Cunha, who's a really nice Mateusz, player. Is there. Mateusz yeah. Cunha is also really a really good player. Um, John Cadoba, I think, was, uh, I think he scored quite a lot of goals in uh, Bundesliga as well. Um, yeah, and Alexander Schwallow, the goalkeeper that they picked yeah, up from Freiburg. This is a good group of players that just, yeah, it's. Um, it's strange. Okay, well, let's, let, I'll tell you what, let's move on to another good group of players and another ship which needs steadying. Uh, Thomas Tuchel has, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and he is en route to become the new Chelsea manager. Um, I think one of the common uh, common reactions to this has been, okay, there's been a lot of political fallout between Frank Lampard and Chelsea. There was, um, you know, there was some tension there. And in response to that tension they've appointed Tuchel, that doesn't add up an awful lot. Because describe to me why that's a logical response, because obviously this goes this goes back to not just the way he left um, PSG and the um, the interview he gave, which kind of sealed his fate, but also his falling out with the, with the hierarchy at Dortmund. Um, for those who aren't aware, do you want to just run us quickly through the shape of that? It's such an interesting appointment. I think you're right. This is, you could write a thesis about this appointment, especially off the back of the Lampard situation. I think Tuchel never really vibed, shall we say, uh, with Hans-Jochen Batzke, the, the CEO of Borussia Dortmund. Um, I think Dortmund as a whole is, is a very specific case. You need 
you always need to, when you talk about coaches at Dortmund after Jurgen Klopp, you need to talk about him, even though part of the problem with appointing a coach after Jurgen Klopp is that you inevitably have to refer to him. Now, I remember when Tuchel was appointed, I think one of the headlines I read um, on Kicker, which is probably Germany's biggest football magazine, was the anti-Klopp. And so that, you know, Dortmund went in a completely different direction. He didn't really get on with with Vatska, I think um, I think he struggled with the concept that Dortmund were trying to challenge and yet at the same time were losing players, key players. I think this idea of being a club that develops talent but doesn't retain them for those pivotal years, I think frustrated him. He obviously had public clashes with Sven Mislintat, who you know then went on to Arsenal by the time was was Dortmund's scout because he wanted to you know have a greater say in terms of recruitment. You know, he's clashed with, with players before um, as well. So he's, he is a very intense and difficult character, I think, at times. Um, but at the same time, you can sort of understand some of the arguments, especially in terms of challenging for trophies and selling your best players, for example. I, I think Vatska struggled with him because it came off the back of Klopp. I think, you know, Vatska and Klopp are, are friends, basically. And I, I think Tuchel was always going to struggle in that regard because... He is very meticulous. You know, he's one of his nicknames is always this idea of like being a football professor. You know, that's one of his nicknames, um, and I think that is absolutely the antithesis of what came before. And I think at a club like Dortmund, you know, where the passion is is something that is a is a, is a desired trait to be on show, shall we say? Um, I think that was hard for for him, and I think that's part of the reason why. He came under such criticism. Although I will say, to his in his defence, you know, he's often accused of being very cold. Um, I will say in his defence, when Borussia Dortmund were attacked on their way to a Champions League game in in April of 2017, he was very supportive uh, of his players, and he was fu- furious that his side had to play a day later. So, um, I think there is a part of Thomas Tuchel that is not as appears. Um, from the outside, is that is that just another Klopp thing in the sense that you, you know you're cold in comparison to Jurgen Klopp, which is you know a, a charge you could probably level at pretty much every coach in Europe at the moment. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you know, I think the truth is the people who know him um, know him to be a warm person, uh, and I, I I've spoken to people who know him and who say that he is empathetic and who's, he's, he's warm, um, he, he's honest. You know, I think there's a lot there that we don't see. Um, and I, I think the perspective of him being a professor and only analytical is a reflection, a reflection of how he approaches the game. I think he's very intense. I think he wants to get all of the details right, but I think he cares deeply about the development of his players. I mean, Christian Pulisic became a superstar under him at at Dortmund and ironically, you know, now reunites with him. Um, He did wonders for Usman Dembele's career. Uh, I think, you know, he didn't get it all right with some players, but I think when he did, it was absolutely astronomical in terms of the development. So I think there is an inevitable, uh, you know, comparison to be made with Klopp that's going to make it worse off for him. And as you say, most coaches in Europe, but I think it's really important to be clear that Tuchel is not that. So I think Chelsea fans are expecting, oh, another German coach, does he have the same passions? No. And it's important to stress that Klopp is actually very uh, 
not very German in that respect. His passion is um, is unique to him. But I think what you do get with Tuchel is uh, is a guy who's learned the job, and um, I'm not sure you can say that for the outgoing manager. I think over in England, I think a lot of people um, a lot of people understand the differences between them as men. I think I think the big question is from a talent pool perspective. You mentioned Pulisic and you mentioned Dembele and that's good examples. I, I chuck a Bamiang in there and Mkhitaryan as well. These players that I like, played some of the best football of their careers under him. I think the question becomes, okay, he's going to go in and he's going to inherit this really decadent squad full of attacking players. Perhaps needs a you know, rebalancing touch further back towards um, the defence, maybe. But I think you know, the expectation is, at Chelsea, you're going to be an employee. You're, not, you're, a, you know, you're going into a space which has been vacated by Frank Lampard and it's designed in that way for a reason. It's because you know, Chelsea's direction as a sporting entity has been defined by Marina Granovskaya, also now uh, increasingly by Petr Cech, who's apparently growing in influence. That's the bit that troubles me. Like the, that you, when, whenever you insert a big personality and a reputation, and let's be fair, a bit of an ego, into that kind of shape, you just think, yeah, that's going to cause some pressure somewhere. Do you think he'll, um, what do you think of that balance? Do you think that's going to work? I think there's an inevitable amount of friction that's going to come from the appointment. But I think what's going to be telling is what Tuchel has learned from his time at PSG because and at Dortmund to a certain extent. But, you know, there's definite evidence there to suggest he's had to deal with, with some of the biggest players in the game at PSG and their egos and how to get the best out of them. And let's not forget, you know, he, he took them to a Champions League final, albeit in a very unusual circumstances. Um, but, you know, they're... They played a, a decent game against Bayern, and if if you know if Neymar and Mbappe get their shooting boots on in that game, it's it's a different outcome, and maybe we we view Thomas Tuchel differently. And you know that's part of the perception problem in football that success will define what kind of uh, assessment is given to you as a coach. I think if Chelsea are smart, on the one hand, they'll let him have um, enough of a say to keep him happy, and not try to put him into a box and say you're only in charge of this. I think on the other hand, Tuchel has to be smart as well and say, right, there are lots of people who are already here who are working on different areas of the club. If I'm able to have maximum influence on how we play football and actually develop a style of play, because I think that's obviously been one of the criticisms of Chelsea in recent weeks and months is that the plan isn't obvious. Whereas I think Thomas Tuchel's incredibly aggressive attacking type of football that we've seen him play, if he's able to develop that, then, you know, he, he should probably be able to make peace with the fact that he's got enough of an influence there to develop a type of football that's great to see. But you're right. I think it's going to be very interesting. I think both sides have to mature um, in response to their context. You know, Chelsea have to be mature enough to admit that the appointment of Lampard was mistaken, that they're trying to move forward in, in the right direction now by appointing someone who's qualified to do the job and who knows what kind of football he wants to play and is capable of managing a squad with, with such big names. And on the other hand, Thomas Tuchel has to say, right, this is a huge opportunity for me. He's always wanted to coach in England. I can say that you know, when he was coaching at Mainz, I had the fortune of chatting to him after a game when they got absolutely hammered by Bayern Munich. And even then, years ago, he had, he talked about his admiration for, for England. Uh, so I think he has an opportunity here. And I think if he recognises that there is going to be some power struggle to be had, but if he plays it smart, then he can be successful. I think that's a, something I'd like to see from him. Well, that was a nice conversation, wasn't it? What a nice man, Seb. And what a lovely anecdote he told you at the end. 
<laughs> well, possibly, possibly, possibly. It's Tuesday morning. We haven't recorded it yet, but Jonathan sure. is pretty good for a good anecdote. So, yeah, you know, I'd say just make sure now I've said this that he does tell you one at the end of your recording. Okay, okay? well, I will. I'll. I mean, we might have to construct one, and it may or may not be true, but we will try. Fine with me. I'll look forward to hearing anecdote. about it. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Alex Stewart. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers. Uh, thanks to you also, Seb, and to Jonathan Harding, of course. Yes, thank you, Joe Devine. And of course, to producer Adonis. Oh, and before we go, one more thing. I'm just going to repeat uh, that in the next couple of weeks, I think I'm hoping as of next week, but I I'm not sure entirely yet. You'll find out. Uh, our Thursday release is going to become a Friday release. And the exciting thing about that for us listeners is that we can start recording just the day before it goes out. So if we want to talk about games that have happened, it doesn't mean that we have to record them and then the episodes are released sort of four or five days later. After a long period has transpired, other things may have occurred. No longer... Tifo will be up to date, present, on the node. What do they say? Happening. Happening now. Always happening. Finger so on exciting. the pulse. Yes. Finger on the pulse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Toe in the dam. And, uh, you know, uh, in the, the dam sounds something very different. Like it's... Toe in the dam? I mean, we're not going to start averting disasters. I mean, we're just, you know, yeah, finger just... in the dam. I mean, I, mm, this how, is how big are you to... to have your finger in the dam or your toe in the dam? Like, <laughs> Joe could just use his hair. What, in the dam? Yeah, just to kind of mat it across the gap. I have got a lot of hair. But anyway, my hair will be here on a Friday and a Tuesday instead of a Thursday and a Tuesday. And I hope that will make a difference to your lives. Oh, and one more thing as well. I was thinking, you guys, you know how uh, people have, people's listeners or viewers have nicknames based on the thing they like? You know, like fan people, you know? So there was like the... I don't know any of the names, but you know what I'm talking about? There's a there's a cultural thing where the people who enjoy something uh, collectively name their group as, in, in relation to the thing that they enjoy. They have a collective noun for their, for their fan base. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what don't I'm trying do to this. say. Don't, I'm begging you not to do I this. Was thinking, Wherever you're going, stop. I was thinking, right. <laughs> what we could is that we could we could get the listeners to start calling themselves this thing and i've placed the perfect thing it's perfect i've spent a long time thinking about it it's perfect because it combines two words tifo and podcast and it sounds like tifo yeah but it's tipo what if they were tipos and we could address them as tipos and they call themselves tipos and in the future we could monetize it <laughs> you know, we could make a lot of money <laughs> So I'm just seeing if it will work. I just want to see if people like the word "tipos." Yeah. So you if fucking you like lost it, it. You, you, are you, you no, no, no. Shush up. <laughs> hey, hey, come now. What I want to know is, listen, <laughs> Seb's been lonely this last week because no one's had anything to, to to tweet at him. But if you like the word "tipo," you should let Seb know on Twitter and just say yes or no. You're interested, you're not. Maybe suggest some other ones, and he'll come back to us next week and, and let us know what the results of that have been. Because I love a bit of audience uh, participation here, particularly from the Tipos. Uh, so anyway, thanks to everyone, uh, and uh, we'll be back on Tuesday. Au revoir. <laughs> <laughs>